Well, hello there and welcome to another exciting episode of Secrets to Real Estate Investing by House Flip Masters. Today we have a lender with us on our show who wears a few different hats as a lender and I'm really excited to have him on because he has such a diverse background and really understands real estate investors and investing because he is an investor himself. This gentleman has had over 14 years in the mortgage and real estate fields, including being in the top 200 of lenders, doing over $400 million in closed loans in all 50 states. He deals in hard money, conventional money, and commercial. He's a flipper with an investor mindset that's done 80 flip properties in his life. So he really understands us investors and where we're coming from. He's been featured in USA Today and the Wall Street Journal. So welcome, Ken Starks. Hi, Holly. Thanks for having me on today. I am so glad to be here. Oh, we are so glad to learn some of what you know, because I know you are such a specialist when it comes to coming up with the money for all the deals that people, people like me and my friends, we come up with the deals like, okay, how do we get the money? What's the right <laughs> kind of money? So thank you for being here to share the money strategies that we all need. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I know hard money isn't really your main focus, but hey, you get people hard money loans, including me. So why don't you explain what hard money is, what the interest rates for it are, and how it differs from conventional loans? Sure, absolutely. So at a high level, hard money is really backed by the real estate itself, by the actual asset and the current market value or purchase price, whichever is lower generally, of that asset. Um, and so, you know, usually most hard money lenders that I've worked with over the years don't care so much about your credit score. They may, they can, don't care about your debt to income ratio or DTI, though some do these days. Um, but generally speaking, you're going to pay somewhere between eight and maybe 12 or 14% on the high end for a hard money or what we can also call asset backed loan. Um, and generally speaking, you know, loan to value, usually you're going to have to have some, you're going to have to have some skin in the game for most lenders. And usually that's at least 20%, um, you know, sometimes a little bit more. Um, some hard money lenders will help you acquire and some hard money lenders will also help you renovate um, homes. Some do loan, you know, loan by loan by loan. Others offer lines of credit. And you and I have talked a lot about that and other, you know, about some of our other clients and whatnot. Um, so that's kind of a broad overview of, you know, the various flavors of hard money and why it's called hard. It's because it's, 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 it's easy to get, um, but it's really all about the asset. It doesn't have much to do with you as the borrower. Got it. And uh, typically, how many points might someone pay with a hard money loan? Yeah, uh, that ranges um, as well. Um, I've seen, you know, very high interest rates, 16, 18% with no points. Um, and, you know, average is probably two points. Um, maybe, and maybe on, you know, if you're working on a line of credit, one point up front and one point as you draw. But generally speaking, two points on a loan 
by loan basis. Um, and, you know, that, that math can vary. Um, sometimes it makes sense to, you know, if your lender will allow you, it may make sense to pay a 16 or 18%, you know, much higher interest rate and avoid points. Um, that can have its upsides and downsides. Um, and, you know, but most deals that I see go through are somewhere, you know, eight and a half to nine and a half and two points. Yeah, I've, I've seen it kind of all over the board myself. So let's um, move away from hard money and get into your bread and butter and talk about conventional loans. So tell mm-hmm. us about, you know, kind of the requirements for conventional loans and um, what they might be used for and how they could apply to a real estate investor. Absolutely. So in a, a conventional loan, uh, generally Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, sometimes others like, you know, FHA or otherwise, FHA, VA, USDA, um, conventional loans. And, and by the way, you know, this is, we're in 2016, we are starting to see some kind of alternative product in small amounts, what we used to call Alt-A, alternative financing, or, you know, some people call it uh, subprime. We're starting to see a little bit of that come back where we can look at, you know, eased income documentation. But a conventional loan is going to take into consideration, absolutely, your credit, your income, your debt-to-income ratio, your credit history of foreclosures or bankruptcies or things like that, um, and going to be more concerned about those things. The right, you know, trying to get a conventional loan. So folks come for conventional loans for all different reasons. Um, some people want long-term money on their uh, the investment properties that they are holding. A lot of my flipper clients or flipper partners come to me with, they want me to be their preferred lender because you know how it goes. If you, you know, you accept a contract from somebody who's got a, uh, an approval letter from a lender you don't know, and it comes down to two, three, four weeks in, turns out that buyer was never really qualified um, to buy that, you know, as their owner occupied or whatever property. And so I do a lot of work in the investor world where uh, flippers will use me as their preferred lender to really vet out if that client has the wherewithal to close that loan because, you know, look, a failed escrow as a flipper extends your hold costs, ruins your IRR, all that kind of stuff. So you want to know that your buyer can exit, you know, can get you out of that property so you can put that cash in the bank. Um, that's, that's one of the biggest ways. And then, of course, a lot of people, you know, are, are holding um, property. So I, a lot of times I get into kind of complex refis where people have unique tax structures um, or whatever and multiple properties. Sometimes even I have a program that's unlimited investment properties, um, which wait, is a wait, niche wait. for sure. What do you mean unlimited? Isn't there, I, I've heard those <laughs> four or 10, that there's a maximum number of loans you can get. Are you saying that you can bust through that? I can. So, um, yes, so it is true. Some, well, specifically, Freddie Mac only allows you to have four financed properties. Fannie Mae allows you to have 10 financed properties and there's, you know, specific guidelines to qualifying for that program. Um, however, I have a niche program that will allow you to do, you know, as many, well, I can only do, I can only do four for an individual client, but you might have, you know, 10, 15, 18, 20, however many properties finance. And that's, that's problematic. Um, so, um, that program allows me to do, um, any, somebody with over 10 properties financed. Wow, what a great opportunity. And I don't know how many years people have been in the real estate investing world and homeownership world, but 
I remember when I got my first mortgage and it was like at 12% back in 1990. And I was so excited for that rate thinking it was so low because it had been, you know, declining. So today's rates that are in the fours are just a miracle. I still think it's such cheap money. So for people to be able to get so many loans and put them on rental properties, I just think it's a huge opportunity with rates where they are, don't you? Hi, 100%. I'm actually working on a project with a couple investors that are doing uh, senior living group homes or sober living group homes. Um, I mean, yeah, there's, there's some really good opportunities coming in the real estate market, depending on what your strategies are. Because um, to me, the right loan, you know, the right loan for you, Holly, may not be the right loan for somebody else, depending on what their exit strategy, their timing you know, depending on the circumstances. So you really want to find a lender that has a strategy brain and wants to partner with you. Right. So here's a question for you. Uh, Typically, when I'm going to flip houses, I will go after a hard money loan. But Mm -hmm. can you ever use conventional money? I mean, obviously, if I'm not intending to live in the house, I can't consider a primary residence but could I get a conventional loan on a house I intend to flip? Pardon me. Absolutely. Um, I've done this, you know, as a, both as an investor and as a lender, um, we can use in different circumstances, we can use what are called non-occupying co-borrowers to help qualify to buy a home. Um, and, you know, and, or do something as a second home. Um, so primary residence or second home with a partner, primary residence with a partner or second home with or without a partner. I mean, that's cheap money to be able to, you know, acquire a property. Then maybe you come up with the, uh, capital to renovate the property and take it into, you know, highest and best use and therefore maximize your return. Um, In different deals that I've done over the years, sometimes I've been a credit partner to a client or a partner who had no credit or no income. So, and that's gotten me 50% of upsides because I'm financeable. And so, you know, sometimes you find in our world that you have, you have, you know, wholesalers or different people who go out and find properties. They don't make money on paper. Maybe they have a great credit score. Maybe they don't. Um, but you know, it's a great way to partner if you've got strong credit and can qualify, uh, because you know, that gets a deal done, less expensive capital and you know, you can do more that way. Wow. I love that. And I have a friend, um, in fact, she was on an earlier podcast, Iris Veneration, when she quit Mm -hmm. working at E-Trade and started flipping houses, well, she started flipping houses before she quit at E-Trade. She quit pretty fast. She always wished she had stuck around longer, that she quit her job too soon. But she went back to her coworkers that all had W-2s and would do partner deals with them because they were very lendable. She wasn't anymore after she quit her day job. But I just thought that was a great opportunity if you can partner up with people who want to be passive and lend their credit to the deal. And you can do lots of deals. Depends on how many friends you have, but you can get lots of things. (laughs) Well, right, because there's, you know, we all know the word OPM, other people's money, but other people's credit is another one. Um, you know, when I've been in the OPC box as, as a, you know, as a partner, I've, like I said, I've done that several times, you know, I usually end up driving the deal because I've got the one that's, you know, risking more. Um, some people want to be active. I've always been an active investor, um, but, you know, and some people want it. Some people are okay to be passive. You know, they have high trust, trust their partner and, you know, fine to be passive. 
and still lend their credit. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's made me tons of money <laughs> for deals that I would not have otherwise known about. That's so cool. Do you have any advice for people structuring that deal either as the, well, let's talk about first as someone who's kind of lending their credit, like what kind of due diligence or whatever would you recommend to someone do before they really lend their credit and put their name on a loan? Well, I mean, you, obviously you want to have a good sense of who you're doing business with. You know what I mean? You want to know. So when I have done that, um, the individual, I've known him for some time. We've been in an investment group together. Um, I knew he had strong ethics. So, you know, you'd want to know those kinds of things. Um, in a partnership, you know, it's not always equal. Some people pull harder than others. Um, and, you know, so you got to figure out who's going to hold the, who's going to have their hands on the wheel and how and when and you know, who's going to be responsible for what. Um, so, you know, both a little bit of due diligence and getting an understanding of who somebody is. Um, and then, you know, really asking some tough questions around, you know, how are we going to run this? You know, what do you expect of me? What can I do to be comfortable? Um, because, you know, a missed mortgage payment. So if, if I'm not in control of paying the mortgage and it's my credit on the deal and you decide to go on vacation with the mortgage payments too, well, we got a problem. So, you know, I've always liked to maintain that control um, of at least the finance side to know that I'm in good shape. That's my personal, but everybody has their own personal level of comfort. Wow, that is a great point. I'm so glad you bring that up because I just had a friend yesterday calling me asking me if he should co-sign on his son's loan to get solar panels on the house. And I say, do you realize you are going to be fully responsible for that whole $43,000 loan? If he decides to not pay, yep. you're responsible. If there's late payments, it goes on your credit. It doesn't matter if you're co-signer. As far as I understand, and please, you know, tell me if I'm misunderstanding, but isn't um, a co-borrower have all of that risk on his credit? 100%. And you get all 100%. the good and the bad. Yeah. If there's prompt payments, it helps your credit. If there's late payments, it hurts your credit, right? 100%. Yep. And so, like I said, that's why I've always, as the credit part, when I've been credit partner, um, although I've done, you know, most of my deals I've done on my own, but I, I have partnered, you know, various, for various reasons. When I have been credit partner, I drive the bus, right? I, I handle the property management. I handle the tenant. I handle the you know, payment, collect, rent collection, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, that's my comfort level, right? When you've got strong credit and, you know, you got to protect it. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, would, I would always advise more, more over less control because it's, it's your destiny. Right. Or at least have a way to check to ensure that all the payments are getting made and, and make sure that your credit is being maintained because you don't want to have your credit go down in flames because you're trying to do a deal to make some money and it ends up hurting you more than it helps <laughs> Well, and I've seen those scenarios too, where I had a dad who co-signed for a son. The son went AWOL for nine months. But guess what? That dad is no longer financeable um, or not easily financeable. And uh, so, you know, yeah, you really want to be cautious and have checks and balances to know that, you know, your credit is protected. Wow. But I mean, on the, on the upside, you know, again, that allowed me to buy in, in the particular market that we were in at that time, an additional four houses um, that each brought an average, you know, we held them for a couple of years. So I got all the depreciation because of our tax structure. The, the partner didn't need the depreciation. We split the cash flow and we split the, the proceeds 50, 50. Um, and so, you know, those four houses made me about a hundred grand. Nice. 
That sounds yeah. like a sweet deal. Thanks for sharing that. Right. I was going to ask you yeah. about some specific stories, either yours or other people you knew, that um, how that went. I've I never, walked right into the punch. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done any deal um, with credit. I'm gonna, I always want to say credit borrowing, but that sounds um, a credit partnership where you're using someone else's credit. But I have some friends out in the Palm Springs area. They... Um, they actually got their dentist to do a bunch of deals with them where the dentist goes on the loan and on title. They do all the property management, but he gets a great loan at a great low price and they're doing all the work. So he's purely passive and it's like a super awesome win-win situation where they're the active real estate investors and he's the passive guy collecting the checks. So, I mean, hopefully that opens up some people's minds to the possibilities out there. Absolutely. So, I mean, that, that's absolutely one way that I help people think through and strategize, you know, what can work for, you know, various outcomes, various scenarios. Yeah, I love that. So definitely people that want to get in touch with you after the show should contact you and tell you their ideas because not, I mean, you're not just this guy that's in a box with a couple of loan programs with your vast investor experience. <laughs> You can go, oh, what about this? Why don't you get a partner to come and do this and just kind of open people's minds to the creative acquisition and financing strategies that exist out there. It sounds like you've done a bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, after 14 years and I don't know how many, you know, 1,200, 1,300 transactions, whatever it is, uh, you know, you learn a thing or two. <laughs> yes. I, I love what I do. I've, I've been in it for a long time and I just, I really enjoy it. And especially for what, you know, and whether it's a seasoned investor like you are, Holly, or a newbie, um, you know, who kind of has a lot of questions. There are no bad questions. There are no dumb questions. Um, and, you know, you, you just have to, it takes time to figure out sometimes the right strategy. And I love helping people do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you kind of touched on this, but like when you're interviewing, I say interviewing, like you're questioning, but it's also that you can serve them better when you're speaking to a new client to see what kind of financing is right for them or, or strategy. Like what are typical questions that you would ask them and get them to ask of themselves? Mm -hmm. Well, so, I mean, you want to know, depending on how long somebody has been in the business, um, you know, things have changed a lot over the years and have they kept fresh? What kind of volume do they do? Um, what kind of loan programs do they really specialize in? Um, you know, some people um, kind of just have niches that they don't go out of. Um, you know, some people are just conventional lenders. Some people are just FHA lenders. Um, you know, I've always wanted to have a breadth of tools in my tool belt to be able to help folks. Um, do they have, you know, investor experience? You know, have they been an investor? Do they, you know, do, do they know how to look at a deal? Do they, you know, maybe have part, uh, you know, other relationships? Do they know people that you need to know to help grow your business? Um, and, you know, so just casually building those kinds of questions into conversation as you get to know someone. Um, you know, everybody has something to offer, but, you know, are they the right choice for you to think, and, you know, you just got to figure that out um, and, and, and ask those kinds of leading questions that allow them to talk about what they do, how they do it, how long they've done it, what kind of deal structures they've done. Um, you know, there's lots of different things. I mean, my gosh, between, you know, our loans that we've done together, both for you and clients, there's lots of different scenarios that come up. Um, so, you know, you just want to get a, a feel for their depth and breadth of experience. And are you going to be able to work with them? Is this somebody you would like working with? Right. And to me, it's always super important to have 
someone that communicates with me, both, um, you know, when I've used you as a preferred lender and you're handling the loan for the buyer on a house I'm flipping, or, you know, I mean, any kind of transaction, you need someone that's going to return a call or a text quickly, especially if we're down to the wire in a tight time crunch, which we certainly have been at times before through no <laughs> choice of our own. But, <laughs> can't always um, control right. everything. And so sometimes their actions force us into, I guess, pr problems and challenges that we need to get through really quickly. So you got to find someone that can react quickly. I call it flipping cartwheels. I could never flip a cartwheel in real life, but I can on a loan. That's for dang sure. Oh, good for you. Well, I can flip them in real life, but not on a loan. So, hey, that would balance it. <laughs> hey, um, do you wear your pink hard hat when you do that? That's my question. Oh, I can't because there's no strap on the chin. But, hey, that's a good idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, um, one thing that I would love for you to address I hear the term direct lender out there. Tell our audience, what is a direct lender? Is it advantageous, disadvantageous? What is that? 100%. So um, the difference between a direct lender and a broker, people use those terms, and, and mortgage banker is a third one. People use those terms without, without always kind of understanding what they mean. A mortgage broker has you know whatever licensing they have usually on a state-by-state -state basis um, and they work with third parties to obtain your loan so think about it if i'm a broker do i have the ability to influence or, or, or control rather what that third party does not usually i might have the ability to influence i might have a relationship but at the end of the day it's not my team that is going to you know fund that loan what people mean when they are saying a direct lender or in the industry speak, we call it a mortgage banker, not necessarily a bank, but a mortgage banker means that um, whatever me as an individual, whatever company I might work for or whatever has been de given delegated authority to underwrite and fund a loan. Um, so it does not have to go to a third party. Um, not to say that being a broker doesn't have its, you know, benefits. It can. I like to say that brokers have, you know, they have tons of flexibility, but not a lot of muscle. Whereas a good direct lender or a good mortgage banker has a lot of muscle, right? Um, and the ability to control the outcome. That's, that's really what people are saying when they say that. So which are you? Uh, great question. Um, I am primarily a mortgage banker um, and kind of always have been. I prefer having control. Um, depending on, you know, if I'm helping somebody with commercial stuff, uh, I have different relationships there that it is technically, um, I consult in those relationships. I'm, so I'm not, I'm not a broker or a banker in the commercial world. Um, and same thing when I help folks with hard money, um, I do it on a consulting basis because uh, our licensing is rather restrictive in our world these days. Um, so, so, um, I kind of play both hats, but I'm primarily a mortgage banker. Got it. And why don't you explain, I mean, I think I've experienced that for myself that sometimes it's gone to bat for me and my clients and you might have a little bit more, um, let's see, more of an audience when you're trying to get things approved than you might otherwise if you were a broker. Is that right? Wait, so 
Say that again. I think I got lost there. Say that again. Okay. So as far as I remember, and some transactions we've done, you've had to, I'll say, plead our case on behalf of a borrower and try and negotiate certain um, documentation requirements and other requirements that you might not have had that influence if you were a broker rather than a yep. banker. Do you agree with that? hundred hundred percent. Um, so, you know, sometimes, you know, and as, as you've been through a loan transaction, you know, sometimes underwriters get a B in their bonnet about something. They think something's problematic and then you've got to back up and work around it. Well, when I say a mortgage banker has muscle, that means that there's ability to influence, navigate, you know, get around, reconfigure, all of those pieces. Um, so absolutely, as a mortgage banker, that's why I choose what I choose, is I have more muscle to get things through over, hey, when's my closing disclosure coming? Well, have they wired yet? Well, what, what about this underwriting condition? You know, I, I'll give you an example. I had a, a client, um, a, a Vietnam veteran, very successful, um, buying a, a, a over a million dollar home in Nevada, um, doing a VA loan. Um, my underwriter's request was to, um, was to deny the file. Um, but, you know, mind you, this client had the ability to pay for the home cash, um, but didn't choose to. So, you know, I'm not about to tell that client, sorry, you're out. Um, so, you know, we worked through the different chains of controls in our organization to be able to fund that loan. And he's a happy customer. He's come back again for a second house. Um, so, whereas once an underwriter in a broker environment might have seen something, I, as a person or loan officer, would have no ability to influence and go up the chain in that organization, that third-party organization. So, you know, when the, when the rubber hits the road, I would rather have more muscle than more flexibility. I would rather be a mortgage banker and have control than be a mortgage broker and sacrifice that control. Well, and my personal experience is that some of the deals that we've done together would have collapsed, fallen apart, not have been able to work if you weren't such a good cartwheel turner, tap dancer, the whole thing <laughs> to, <laughs> to educate those um, above you, I know, to, you know, why the deal was still good. I mean, we're not trying to do anything illegal or bad, but a lot of times it's just educating someone on the whole circumstances and the whole file of why it's still in the lender's best interest to make the loan, right? <laughs> well, yeah. And it's, you know, it's all about presentation, and what is, I hope you take this the right way, but I, I often say to my clients that I have a good, you know, good relationship with, look, let's just get naked and I'll figure out how to cover the right things up. <laughs> you know, it's about presentation, right? You get on the phone with somebody and they don't, well, well, and they kind of tiptoe around a bankruptcy or a foreclosure or a whatever, a collection. Like, look, let's just get to it. Where is your money? Where is your credit? Let's figure it out. And if we can find a way to cover, you know, all the right holes, we'll get to the end zone. And, yes. you know, so that, that's, that's often what I say. It's way easier to with a good loan officer. Now, once stuff goes past the loan officer and goes to an underwriter, you know, you, you, you may not win that one, right? If you show the wrong thing to an underwriter, that, you know, things can be deal killers. Um, but, you know, good loan officer knows how to, you know, present correctly. I love that, especially because you've helped uh, a few, I think we've done three transactions in the 
not too distant past where with I, one with our favorite family. Yes, yeah. and and I tell my clients tell Ken everything. Be open, be honest. He's yeah. like a lawyer. It's like attorney-client privilege. You're not going to scare Ken away. This is the best way. If you tell him everything now, then we can present it the best way rather than trying to, you know, something comes out later that they didn't tell you about and then you look dumb and bad and the whole file's blowing up. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, a great thing that I love about working with you and having my clients work with you is that you can take it all in and figure out how to best present it for the best outcome for everyone. Here, here. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, we've always, you know, I think part of the reason you and I have a good working relationship, Holly, is because I think we trust each other. Um, I think we've got great chemistry and, you know, kind of energy together. We enjoy the actual process, even when we go into bumps and hurdles, right? And, uh, you know, I think um, when you're looking for a lender partner as an investor, that lender needs to be your partner to be able to get you, you know, exited out of stuff or get your transaction closed. Um, and, you know, because that's going to happen. You got to know that you want to work with that guy or that girl, you know, through the process. Well said. And I love knowing that I have got you in my back pocket ready as I'm a realtor out there, you know, meeting new buyers. If they don't have a lender that they're super committed to, I'd love to know that I'm just going to be able to go to you. And if anyone can do it, Ken can. So it's like great to know <laughs> a resource like you. Well, hey, we're getting close to the end of our show here, but I would love to give our listeners a few action steps that they can take. And the first one I'm going to throw out there that you can add on to, but something we haven't talked about is just people's primary residence mortgages. So if there's people yep. out there listening, have a mortgage on their house and they're deciding whether or not they should call you to talk about a refi, what's kind of that interest rate hurdle, like obviously I know, hey, if they're at six or 7%, they should for sure call you to do a refi because you're going to save them a bunch of money. But what's that cutoff interest rate today that you'd say they should meet? Well, you know, I would, I will say this. It depends. It depends on how long they've been in a loan and what their goals are. You know, I have some of my clients who want to get out of an FHA loan and get rid of PMI and be on a new 15 year loan. And they're, you know, maybe they're, you know, not everybody, not, not everybody does, not everybody wants a 15 year loan, but some do, right? And so converting to a 15 year is almost a no brainer. I mean, with rates in the high 2%, 2.8, 2.9, um, you know, that's the, usually the best rates out there if you want that payment. Um, but if you're in a 30 year scenario and you're above, you know, four and a half, four, you know, in the high fours, um, it's probably time to have a conversation. But there's one other thing here. Sometimes, given people's scenarios, sometimes it makes sense to, you know, people have racked up some debt. It may make sense to pay that, to put that into a mortgage. You know, not always. That's a, that's a personal judgment call. Um, but, you know, maybe your rate may not be the most important thing. Maybe your cash flow is a more important thing um, to get you to whatever goal you might be trying to get to. Uh, but for sure, if somebody's in, you know, high fours, because we are, you know, high threes to, you know, four right now on a 30% or 30 year rather um, deal. Um, and so, and, you know, that's with 740 credit scores and whatnot. So obviously, you know, there's loan level pricing adjusters. That's what we call them. That's a technical term, LLPAs, uh, that can change that credit scores, loan to values, things like that. Um, but anybody in high fours on a 30 year on their primary, we should talk. 
Love that. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be on a 15-year myself. I think I'm at 2.75%, which, oh my gosh, I want to say my first mortgage was probably 12.75 back when I was <laughs> fresh out of college, bought my first place at age 21, and now I'm at 2.75. Like I, I would have laughed at you if you told me, someday in the future, interest rates will go down to 2.75%. Like, what? <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's an awesome opportunity for people that, that want that. Um, Quick payoff too, 15 year, love it. And thank you for bringing up the consolidate other debt. I often forget about that because I'm so averse to consumer debt, to credit card debt. I'm all for business debt, but I know some people get into trouble and they rack up the credit cards or heck, maybe they ran up a credit card trying to do a house flip, you never know. And that's a sure. great way yep. to pay that off, get it in a low interest rate on their mortgage and be able to write off the interest that they otherwise couldn't if it's just in, on a credit card or something. So great point. 100%. Yep. And then, of, of course, yep. uh, and the next action step is for investors that want to learn how they can work with you. They need to give you a call or an email or something, get in touch with you. But why don't you give us your phone number, email, and website for people to reach out to you? Absolutely. So my email address, or rather my phone number is area code my cell. It's, you know, because I'm out in the field, I always give my cell. And I, I like to be very available for clients. I mean, I think you would testify that we've texted at 10 and 11 o'clock at night sometimes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so my cell is area code 714-328-4475. Uh, my uh, email address is ken, K-E-N, at the... T-H-E, and then Starks, my last name, and team, Ken at the starksteam.com, hence my website, thestarksteam.com. Awesome. Thank you. Love it. And then do you have any last words of advice or action steps that you'd recommend to people? Do it. I say do it. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, investors can get into analysis paralysis or, you know, not sure. Just take the next step forward, whatever that is, make the call you know, call and talk to your partner, call and talk to your lender, call and talk to me, call and talk to Holly, take a next step. So take action. That's what will get you the results that you want. Thank you so much. Great words of advice. And if you don't know what that next action step is, you said exactly right. Call someone who probably does know or might have ideas, especially if you're getting stuck in that analysis paralysis. So with that, we are going to end our show. Thank you once again, Ken. You've provided so many fantastic insights and valuable information. You've been awesome. I'm so glad to come on. Thanks for having me, Holly. All right. Thank you.